This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We're fond of quotes and quips and the like in this program, but today I think we're going to start out with a cliché, that cliché being the show must go on. I think it's appropriate for this program because yours truly is a bit under the weather, but I'm going to do what I can to soldier on and see if we can't produce a decent hour of programming. We were blessed to have Carol Channing on this this show many years back. Somewhere during that interview, the subject of what you do when you just don't feel up to a performance uh, uh, arose, and she, she just, in her Carol Channing way, said, well, you just, just have to do it. So I guess not her Miss Channing. Today, we're going to just have to do it. And I must say, too, I'm not helped one bit by the, the, the sort of gloom which has descended over this program in the wake of the fact that, well, we didn't get any feedback from you, dear listener, not, not to put the blame on you, but... We asked last week for you to send us information on what you knew about the deep state and what people you knew knew about the deep state. And I'm sorry to say that not a single person responded. We don't know whether this is because there's a lack of interest in the topic or whether people just simply don't know. We hope it's not due to a lack of interest because we're going to devote some of today's program to taking a look at what the deep state may be or may not be. But since that promises to be a rather gloomy topic, we need to start off today's program with something funny and good. And luckily for me, yesterday's Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, had a wonderful article that I must quote from. It comes from the World section, and the headline is, Parody Candidate Could Embarrass His Genuine Rivals. Article by Giovanna Guy with dateline Arasak, Serbia. Article is as follows. Ahead of Serbia's presidential election on Sunday, a political parody has emerged as a true star. His name is Luka Maksimovic, but the 25-year-old student bidding to become the Balkan country's next leader has won fame and public support, appearing as a grossly exaggerated politician, complete with a white suit, oversized jewelry, and man bun. Campaigning as a sleazy, loud character who makes wild promises and whose triumph is foretold by fortune tellers, Maksimovic has won over many in crisis-stricken Serbia, which has been plagued by political corruption and is eager for new faces and ideas, which I would say, well, who isn't in the world at this point? The article notes that opinion polls have predicted Maksimovic could win about 11% of the vote trailing the powerful populist Prime Minister Alexander Vucic, but beating other established candidates. (laughs) The communication student said, It's just my charisma. Citizens are so anxious to see me that I must sneak in unannounced to avoid large crowds descending on me. The article notes that Vucic, a front-runner, is hoping to get over 50% of the vote Sunday to avoid a presidential runoff in April. It's noted that his status is not threatened by Maksimovic's over-the-top alter ego, who is dubbed Lublisia Belly. Belly, as he is now known, first came to life last year, created by young pranksters for a local election in Mladenovac, a drab former industrial hub outside the capital of Belgrade. Riding on a white horse surrounded by mock bodyguards, Belly and his Hit It Hard Citizens Group became a sensation, gathering 20% of the vote, which translated into 12 seats in the local assembly. 
A year later, Maksimovic says the disarray in Serbia's political scene means it's time the time has come for Belai, which means white in Serbian, to move on to the national level. Videos featuring Belai doing push-ups, sucking raw eggs, or treading through a forest like a prophet have been a hit on social media, in sharp contrast to the dull, predictable promotional material put out by other presidential candidates. You just have to like this guy. Last Saturday, Maksimovic opened his Belai Caravan Road campaign in a Serbian village by climbing a white marble statue of a 19th century Serbian hero, raising his arms high and shouting through a loudspeaker, I am here to save you people. He then went on to artificially inseminate a cow at a nearby farm while speaking about the miracle of creation. You know, we've called Europe before. This is the kind of guy we need to get on Radio Parallax. We may do that. Well, we may try. We'll see. Unfortunately for us, our Serbian translator passed away last year. Yes, we sadly lost our aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zarevica, who uh, was fluent in Serbo-Croatian and would have been just the guy to contact Belai with us, alas. Now, the picture of Belai that accompanied the article is rather amusing. He is wearing a white outfit, which does bring to mind that idea that you need to dress for success. You know, you gotta, you got to look the part if you're going to fulfill a role. And in conjunction with that idea, I'm going to cite a piece I've been sitting on for a few weeks, which is a reprint for something that appeared in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, According to the magazine, if you want to look like a chief executive officer, it helps to look the part. This comes from a piece by Alina Dizik, who cited a recent study at Duke University where researchers asked 2,000 people to compare photos of a CEO and a non-CEO, and rate them based on how competent the person appeared to be. Despite not knowing which person was the actual executive and having no other biographical knowledge, study participants consistently rated the CEOs as looking more competent in general. These chief executive officers had square jaws, sharper features, and a more mature appearance. Looking competent isn't the same as being attractive, but rather is the opposite of being baby-faced, said study author John Graham, a professor of finance at Duke. Researchers also linked a competent appearance with a higher CEO pay, but they found no evidence that looking competent leads to better business decisions. Does this surprise anyone? All right, if that, we start off with our good news for the week. Uh, let's segue into our stat of the week, which really depresses me. It comes from something called Vulture.com and notes that more than 34 million Americans play video games an average of, average of 22 hours each week. 5 million Americans play 40 hours a week. And the average young American today will have spent as many hours playing video games, roughly 10,000 by age 21, as he or she spends in classrooms. We find that deeply disturbing here at Radio Parallax. And speaking of political farce, as we were a moment ago, how about the one that took place in uh, Nicaragua not so long ago? We didn't report on this last November because at that moment in time we were not on the air. But... 
Had we been, we would have noted that former Marxist guerrilla Daniel Ortega won a third term as president. It was a landslide victory. Uh, well, of course, it came after the opposition boycotted the national vote, calling it electoral farce. Judicial and electoral officials loyal to Ortega had barred opposition leaders from running and shuttered opposition media outlets. Yeah, that does kind of stack the deck in your favor a little bit. <clears throat> Under Ortega's rule, poverty and violence have dropped in Nicaragua, but he's also consolidated power for his own Sandinista party centering on his family. His vice president is now his wife, Rosario Murillo, and the couple's sons and daughters occupy key roles in the country's business, media, and security sectors. Isn't it nice to know that something like that could never happen in America? I mean, you wouldn't see somebody's son-in-law joining the cabinet, would you? Or getting your daughter a security clearance and giving her an office in the White House? We don't know that she's heading the office of new handbag design or exactly what she's doing in the White House, but um, she's there. And since we're talking uh, politics, let, let's back into something that we made passing mention of a while ago, but I think we need to look at again. We are going to be talking a bit about, you know, the deep state and what exactly is going on in this battle between the new administration and, shall we say, entrenched forces. But you may have noted last December that uh, the news leaked out or was leaked out from what are described as U.S. officials to NBC News and, and others, uh, that the President of the United States got on the red phone, the hotline to Moscow in October on the eve of the election, to warn Vladimir Putin about how the U.S. might respond to Russian hacking of the U.S. election. Now, the plot thickens. Reportedly, Mr. Obama, when he had the G20 summit in China in September, met with Putin and uh, apparently did not want to, according to sources, inflame an already tense situation. So used some less specific language to warn Putin of consequences if Russian interference didn't stop. Of course, after that, the release of hacked Democratic emails continued. Now, it should be noted, these came through WikiLeaks, with Julian Assange and others have steadfastly denied came from Russia. But at any rate, according to NBC News, the release of hacked Democratic mails continued, and a month later, the U.S. used the latest incarnation of an old Cold War communication system, the so-called Red Phone that connects Moscow to Washington, to reinforce Obama's September warning that the U.S. would consider any interference on Election Day a grave matter. At that time, Obama used the phrase, armed conflict. According to senior U.S. officials, part of the message sent over the red phone on October 31st said, international law, including the law for armed conflict, applies to actions in cyberspace. We will hold Russia to those standards. It was noted at the time in December that the Obama administration had never used the system before. Several intelligence officials told NBC News the use of the red phone communicated just how serious the situation had become. Retired Admiral James Stavrilis, the former head of NATO, said it's a dramatic step to pick up the phone and use it. The article also quoted an Obama administration as posing the question, did the red phone message work? Well, look at the results. There was nothing done on Election Day, so it must have worked. Now, at this point in time, this is where Radio Parallax separates from 
the rest of the crowd because on this program we opposed the possibility that there was actual Russian hacking of numerous states' voting apparatus on Election Day, something we intend to investigate further in the future with statisticians and vote hacking experts. But right now, at this moment in time, it doesn't seem as though anybody is willing to go there. There's a lot of talk of Russian hacking in the air, mostly related in general to the influencing of the election. And there is much talk about how the vote counts in numerous states are suspicious, but no one's putting two and two together. And we might be putting two and two together to get five. We don't know, but we think it's worth looking at. One thing that's clear about all this, the plot is getting pretty thick. One great thickener to the stew was uh, showed up here a couple days ago when over in India, former Vice President Dick Cheney sounded off about this uh, Russian election interference, which he described as possibly an act of war. Again, quoting NBC News, piece by Petra Cahill, former Vice President Dick Cheney said Russia's alleged interference in the U.S. presidential election could be interpreted by some as an act of war. Quote, there was a very serious effort made by Mr. Putin and his government, his organization, to interfere in major, major ways with our basic fundamental democratic processes, Cheney said, referring to Russian President Vladimir Putin. In some quarters, the quote goes on, that would be considered an act of war. Of course, we should pause right there to say, yes, if you're going to interfere with the U.S. presidential election, <laughs> you shouldn't allow foreigners to do it. I mean, Mr. Cheney should know about that. After all, both he and the president were in Ohio on the eve of the 2004 election when a lot of mysterious things happened in the vote count. For more information on that, we refer you to our archives and our chat with Bob Fitrakis, among others. But the NBC article by Petra Cahill notes that Cheney's statement comes at a time when both the U.S. Senate and House intelligence committees are investigating alleged Russian meddling in the election that brought Donald Trump to power. They note that U.S. intelligence agencies have concluded that Russia conducted a covert hacking operation to undermine the U.S. election process, pretty vague description, which evolved into an attempt to help Trump win the White House. They also believe with a, quote, high degree of confidence, unquote, that Putin became personally involved in the campaign to interfere in the election. Now, at the outset of this speech, Cheney emphasized he does not speak for anyone else. I'm not part of the government anymore. And, well, thank God for small favors. But even though he is no longer the vice president, we don't suspect that Mr. Cheney has resigned whatever position he holds in what you'd have to describe as the deep state. And we consider ourselves very lucky in this program to have been intermittently in contact over the years with someone who first popularized that phrase in America. He's been described as the inventor of it, but that's not exactly true. But he certainly is the first one to popularize the description of what goes on behind the scenes in American politics as the actions of the deep state. I'm speaking about Professor Peter Dale Scott of UC Berkeley. Professor Scott is not someone you're going to probably read much about in the Washington Post, the LA Times, the Atlantic, the New Yorker. His views of a, what I guess you would call, conspiratorial nature are such that even Robert Perry of ConsortiumNews.com, an excellent investigative journalist, uh, finds a little too difficult to accept. But I do want to emphasize, we don't. 
I remember back in the mid-70s when uh, there was a revival of interest in the case of John F. Kennedy, what happened to Kennedy. About that point in time, Geraldo Rivera, and one of the few things he's done as an actual journalist, or let me see, a few things of merit he's done as a journalist, was to bring film technician Robert Groden onto his late-night program and show the nation for the first time what it had prior to that never seen, which was the Zapruder film shown as an actual movie. When seen as an actual movie, it looks bloody obvious that the president was murdered by a shot from the front, which we would hasten to add, basically, he was. Yes, there was a gunman on the grassy knoll, and uh, that fact seemed intuitively obvious to the nation. As the case uh, was basically back under public scrutiny again, Peter Dale Scott and others came forward to take a good hard look at the situation. I first heard his name mentioned when hanging out in a bookstore in downtown Davis as a college student. The proprietor had been reading some of what Professor Scott had been putting out and said, this is the guy that is figuring it out. I did not then know if this was a correct appraisal, but I do now, and I can tell you that it is. Although don't look to Peter or anybody else to tell you the name of the man on the grassy knoll with the rifle. We still don't know that, and maybe we never will. But in the end, it does seem less important than the fact that somebody put him there. At any rate, if you started back in the 70s or 60s, or really any time you want to choose, since World War II probably to follow the threads of what leads you may find, you sooner or later, and generally sooner rather than later, will bump into aspects of the deep state. Now, currently, the public is being advised that, that well, yes, there's this, this thing called the deep state out there, but, well, first of all, it, it doesn't really exist, or at least not in the way you think it does. And having established that fact, uh, the whole concept is being fuzzied up <laughs> pretty thoroughly, so that before long, it's difficult to have any kind of intelligent discussion about the topic. We're going to try, though, starting with this marvelous piece that I stumbled upon in the Washington Post by a man named Mark Ambinder, described as a fellow at the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. He is the co-author of a book titled Deep State. But to hear him tell it, this is something that may have existed in the past, but really, really isn't around much anymore. In the Washington Post piece titled Five Myths About the Deep State, Ambiner puts forth, well, about as thorough a piece of propaganda as you're going to find anywhere. Let us quote from his five myths. Myth number one was, it's the hidden source of national security policy. Said Ambiner, according to some on the right, there exists a group of unaccountable men and women who have collectively decided to go rogue. And according to some on the left, including civil libertarian Glenn Greenwald, deep state officials want to make sure Russia remains an enemy of the United States. The reality, according to Mr. Ambinder, is that the deep state is a major hidden amplifier of national security policy that is set by elected officials and carried out primarily through public communication, concentrated diplomacy, and overt military action. Now, we would stop right there and turn the clock back to the 1970s when the U.S. was operating the largest, quote-unquote, covert operation 
in the history of the world, which was the war being conducted in Afghanistan after the Soviets invaded. It was later admitted by National Security Advisor Brent Scowcroft and others that, um, let's just say, intelligence operatives working at the alleged behest of the U.S. government provoked the Soviet Union into invading Afghanistan so that we could then give them their own Vietnam. We did this in part by arming the Afghanis to the teeth, as witnessed in such later incomplete historical views as Charlie Wilson's war, and also by using our valiant allies in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan to take jihadists, foaming at the mouth, crazed fundamentalist Islamicists, and train them to fight the Russians. In this case, people like Milt Bearden of the CIA, a name you probably hadn't heard of, you probably haven't heard of, armed people like Osama bin Laden, whom you probably have heard of, to kill Russians. They killed so many Russians that the Soviet Union decided they really needed to withdraw from Afghanistan. Now, this is just one example we may choose. There are many others, but we'd have to ask in this particular example, how is it that in this case, the deep state is a hidden amplifier of national security policy set by elected officials and carried out primarily through public communication, concentrated diplomacy, and overt military action. Doesn't seem to be an adequate description to us. The second myth cited in this article is the deep state evades oversight. In the text, the author says that for a long time, the FBI routinely harassed American political dissidents. The National Security Agency opened telegrams, note the word telegrams, sent to and from U.S. citizens abroad, and the CIA ran an entire secret war in Southeast Asia. But, he says, in the 1970s, the Vietnam War and Watergate emboldened Congress. After a series of investigations known to history by the last names of senators who chaired them, the Pike and Church Committees, a more modern oversight system was born for the intelligence and defense worlds. He notes, we presume with a straight face, that military policy, defense spending, intelligence agencies, and homeland security all have separate committees before which officials must regularly testify under oath and justify their actions. He then goes on to note that at least some members of Congress must be notified before the start of any CIA covert operations. Sorry, but does that sound like adequate oversight to you? But he closes this oversight myth by saying that increased public access to information has also made sleuths of everyone and the ability of less powerful actors in our democracy to investigate larger investigations of the deep state has become a significant check. In the long run, the national security apparatus cannot attract the best and brightest when it does bad things. Yes, I think it's been well established that the best and brightest only do good things. Myth number three, the deep state is unchangeable. The author claims, on the contrary, the deep state is highly fragile, vulnerable by its nature to single-point failure, usually in the form of individuals who have something they'd like to tell the world. Think of Edward Snowden's intellectual revolt against the NSA, or the decision by a lonely army private in Iraq to steal diplomatic cables, or whomever gifted WikiLeaks with the CIA's phone and television hacking tools. In this way, a single person can completely alter the way an institution conducts tradecraft. 
Well, that would be true if we noted that in the wake of Edward Snowden's revelations, the NSA had completely changed how it was doing business. But is anyone aware of any evidence that they have? On the note, the bureaucracies cannot avoid the consequences of misbehavior. Budgets can be slashed. Programs can be curtailed. And policy can be changed. Yes, they can be. But are they? Myth number four, which we'll probably talk about in greater length in our second segment here. Myth number four, the deep state leaks gratuitously. We have to note that leaks are just a, a matter of life, a matter of policy in the government. But according to the author, before Watergate, leaks often served as a genuine check on unconstrained executive power. But nowadays, he said, the deep state seems to be the source of fewer leaks of classified information than political office holders and their staffs. He claims at this point that the information about uh, Michael Flynn's contact with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kishlak uh, could have come from other sources besides Trump's own team, but says, he says that given how tightly held that information was, at least some of them had to be close to the president, meaning the sources. Does that seem terribly likely to any of you, dear listener? In myth number five, the military-industrial complex is the deep state. In this case, we're inclined to agree with the author because that's just a little too simplified. But here's his argument. While Eisenhower's military-industrial complex was white, male, and Christian that was ruled by a priesthood that sanctified nuclear doctrine above all else, the national security bureaucracy today is professionalized, rule-based, and highly diverse. It's organized around counterterrorism. Well, that, that settles that. His final statement is the constituent parts of the deep state do not often align and they do not form one conspiracy. And in that, we can agree. The deep state is not a James Bond villain. It is a multitude of interests, and we're going to have more to say about that in our second segment. Let us take a short break then. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We'll continue our look at the deep state in our next segment. Don't go away. <laughs> 